This episode of Talk Your Book is proudly brought to you by Honan, providing a complete range of insurance, risk, and financial solutions. Bundy's called me up, told me to take a look, but stay stubborn as bulls and talk their own book. Get the money, get the money, get, get the money. Well, Andrew Chapman, thanks very much for coming back on uh, back on Talk Your Book. You've been on Masters of the Market and Talk Your Book, and uh, you're certainly a crowd favourite, so I appreciate your time. No problems, Chris. Thanks for having me back. Now, we wanted to, you wanted to talk about Bard Life Sciences as uh, as your first stop. We've got a double header with you today, which given you're in such uh, electric form, we, we figured was only fitting. But before we get into Bard Life Sciences, up 600% in a few days in mid-Feb and Merchant owned it, about 14.5% of it. On a scale of one to Michael Mancini from Melrose Place, how smug are you feeling uh, at the minute? That's a generational joke. <laughs> I might isolate all the Bitcoin, all the Bitcoin viewers before we've even started. Mate, most of your listeners won't even know what we're talking about. <laughs> it um, has been an epic run. You must have had a very enjoyable February. Yeah, look, we did. We've had a pretty good run, actually. We've had uh, we've had a couple of biotechs um, that have been pretty good for us in the last twelve months. Um, the last one that I talked about here on Talk Your Book Race has also been a good one. We're still in that. Um, but I think, um, yeah, look, that, that, that news flow was phenomenal and the, the market reaction was incredible. And, uh, and, and I think, look, it's one of those ones where, I, you know, yeah, we're pretty happy. We're going to print, you know, assuming the market holds for the end of the financial year, we'll print some pretty big numbers in the, the opportunities fund this year. Um, but look, I don't think that reactions was, was overcooked. I think, you know, the market price has dropped back from sort of it hit five dollars intraday and dropped back to about four, and now it's hovering around three. and And I think there's still plenty of opportunity for to see it at least get back to those highs. So um, we'll um we'll get into to Bard and and what they do and, and what those test results were in a minute. Maybe start with telling me a little bit about the history and how uh, Bard Life came to be uh, the entity it is today. Yeah, it's, it's actually a good story, um, Chris, because it was, it was about three years ago that we started, um, you know, on the back of the success that we had with Polynovo and a couple of other biotechs. And then, then from Polynovo, we sort of went into the medical cannabis space. And I, and I still think that's got room to move and, and we'll probably see some pretty decent, um, you know, results coming into that space as well, still to come as it gets legalised and whatnot. Um, but we used uh, essentially the success of Polynovo then to really go about looking for the next opportunity that, um, that we thought was available. And the diagnostic space was a real fragmented one. Um, so we had a bit of a look around in that, um, in that section of the market. Now, essentially, the diagnostic space, as you know, is, is, is basically just you know, a, a test that would be normally quite evasive for someone. It's changing it around to be a blood test and um, in really simple forms and the blood test then. Um, and what we did was we, we sort of did some research and we came across Bard One and we came across Sienna. And then through that process, we completed a placement into Sienna and we completed one into Bard One as well because, um, and at the same time, we also um, were heavily invested in Rhythm, which is another biotech, RHY. Um, and then privately, there's a fourth one in the mix, which is coming through to IPO now called Decal. And, and why I did this was I, I took strategic stakes in all four of them with a the view that we would try and get them all together and create one, 
you know, really large diagnostic company in Australia, and that would be the market leader and we the biggest in Australia, the biggest listed company. And through various, you know, reasons that didn't quite pan out and, uh, and it was a few years of work and, um, and, but what did pan out was we were able to get Sienna and Bard One together over, over a course of the last year. And that's, that's culminated in the last probably six months, there'd been one company called Bard One. And, uh, and, and the reason why I tried to put them all together is because we took the view that the diagnostic space with a lot of biotechs actually as well as the same is that you've got to have multiple shots, you know, mm. you don't want a binary outcome. And, and if you've got one test and something doesn't go right, it's quite binary, you know, you mm. stop and go from a dollar back to 20 cents in a heartbeat. And, um, and so by trying to roll them up, what we were trying to achieve was to basically corner the market. So if you think about the body, we were trying to get, so you had a test basically from here all the way down to your knees. You know, in that company, there would have been a test for every different type of cancer that, that is, a, you know, it's a broad-based big market. And, um, and as I said, for various reasons, we couldn't get it all together and, you know, and, and, and then, but we ended up with Bard One and we still, and over time we sold out of our holding in rhythm, which has done really well also. And, uh, and BCAL now is about to go to market. So they just raised pre-IPO money. And I think that'll be a pretty hot float as well when that comes on. So, um, so we've made money regardless, but the, the broader plan was to get them all together, but we didn't end up there, but you know, so be it. So we've ended up with, uh, with Sienna and Bard One coming together. Um, and then we did a, then we participated in a placement share consolidation and those sort of things and whatnot. And so we ended up with a really decent sized stake and, um, and we're still sitting on that, you know, we've trimmed a little bit through the, this boom in the last week of February, we trimmed a little bit off, but we're still sitting on, you know, our original stake. Actually, we just went back up um, uh, yesterday or yeah, actually yesterday, we just went back up. Um, so as we bought some more stock into the fold. So um, that's how it all came about. Um, and I think, uh, you know, it, like Polynova, I think this industry probably has the potential to be, a, you know, a billion, there's going to be a billion dollar plus market cap diagnostic company somewhere along the line for sure. And talk to me about why a blood test for cancer is such a significant improvement on traditional diagnostics for, uh, for cancer. Well, look, it, it, the accuracy is the, the main reason. Um, and it's really interesting, actually. I, I, I don't do a lot of, I don't read a lot of podcasts and whatnot, but I, apart from your own, but of course, I, Jeffy. <laughs> look at one the, I was listening to one the other day on Freakonomics oh, yeah. and, uh, and they had one called how to fix the incentive um, in cancer treatments or something along those lines. And, it, and it's a really good podcast to actually get a bit of an understanding of the diagnostic industry. And, uh, um, and what, you know, what we, we sort of looked at is how do you, and what the diagnostic industry is looking to do is how to take a, a test that is quite invasive um, and, and a lot of the times inaccurate and streamline it to be something that's more effective and, and, uh, and less invasive for the population. So you get more people screened versus less. Um, and that's the reason sort of that we've been into to Bard One and, uh, and, and all the others actually from, from that point of view. And there'll be a lot of viewers here that, that look at total addressable market as a, a big part of uh, their investment universe when they look at companies. I mean, the total addressable market for this is enormous. Maybe yeah. talk us through some of the numbers around that that you've fleshed out and maybe just some of the internal numbers, perhaps what the market cap is of, of BARD to give investors a, a feel of the opportunity available. 
Yeah, look, I think I think there's, um, and, and this is sort of goes back to that point earlier about trying to roll up all these diagnostic companies because, you know, there, there are um, the, the addressable markets within bar, they're gigantic, you know, they're, they're telephone book numbers, they're in the billions. Um, and this is where we wanted to sort of um, be because if you're going to have multiple shots at it and multiple shots on goal, for instance, to use an expression, then you want to have those directed in where there's the biggest bang for your buck. And, and this is what I really like about Bard because at the moment, and this is notwithstanding that there's more stuff coming down the pipeline, um, we, we sort of worked it out. There's about nine different tests all up. And um, whereas some of the other diagnostic companies, they might only have one. Hmm. And, uh, and for my dollars in terms of the investment money that we look after, then, you know, that one test, it might work, in which case that's fantastic. But I'm sort of keeping in mind a little bit of risk management. And so I'm going, well, you know, I'd rather have nine shots at it because, you know, three or four will work, one or two won't, and the rest will be sort of, you know, average. And um, But the three or four that'll work, the addressable markets are gigantic. So Bard's got a market cap of about 300 mil at the moment. Now, when you look at the nearest competitors on a, on a global scale, you know, 300 million is, is pocket change in comparison. So you're talking about market sizes and, and, and company sizes that are, you know, their the major competitor in the US, for instance, is up around 11 billion. Um, and so, and now you start, you know, building on the success of the results that have been released in late February. And, and once you've got that platform right and you start rolling that out across various other tests, um, you know, your, your size can be massive. And this is why I think, you know, Bard is probably, um, you know, on the cusp of being the billion dollar diagnostic company in Australia, you know, it's, it, and it's fully funded for the foreseeable future. There's no real need to, to raise any coin. Um, they've got uh, 8 million in, in cash, another couple of million in options that'll be exercised. So you're talking about a $10 million, you know, cash box, which, you know, in, with the current cash burn, that's pretty decent. That's a fair, a fair amount of time. Um, and you know the synergies that have been created from merging those two companies is probably a million bucks a year as well. Um, so it, uh, I think you know, Bard is even though it has had a run, and you know when when we when we talked about doing this um, Bard on the on the podcast today, you know it was sixty odd cents, and and uh, I, I, did I think it would go to five dollars sixty in the space of a couple of weeks? No, to be really honest. Um, but I do think with those results that have been released now, the platform is there and the company can sort of turn into probably the, Australia's largest diagnostic company. The fact that I didn't buy any at 60 cents would speak to the fact I didn't think it was going to go to $5.60 either, Chappie. But uh, we're not going to harp on it. We're not going to harp on yeah. about that. You mentioned valuations there and uh, the comparables with some of the US counterparts. Just about any time I look at a, an Aussie uh, biotech stock or a, a stock in in that healthcare space with comparables over in the States, the valuations over there just dwarf what, uh, what the valuations are. Uh, here you see some of the companies that Kathy would invest in, you know, they just look, yeah. make the Aussie ones look like ridiculous value. Do you think you'll start to potentially see some US investors uh, look at that potential price arbitrage and go, the valuations here don't really stack up compared to what you can get in Australia. Or do you, do you think, um, you know, there'll be some, some important implications with that valuation differential? Look, uh, look, I agree. I think it's only a matter of time before 
you know, there are, like as we've seen with Polynovo, for instance, you know, that, that, that went from a, when we got involved in that, it was like five cents and it went from a, you know, 25 mil market cap to, you know, to 2.2 2, 2 or 2.3 billion over a period of time. And, uh, and, and it's settled down a little bit now, but I, I think there's a bit of arbitrage there. There's certainly, um, Australia is um, up there in terms of the, the scientific knowledge and know-how and so on, and, uh, and the educational standards that we're, we're seeing are consistent with that of the US. I think that you know the the US market as as a whole is just I don't know it's just the liquidity is gigantic if you can sort of crack that that you know that US listing in some of these companies and and you know I think you you you'll make multi of of where it is even at this point in time and so I wouldn't be surprised if you do see some but keep in mind you know on the US market a micro cap stock is is 350 million US so um you know, our, our stocks need to get bigger and bigger and bigger here first and then in order to just attract some of that money. Do you think um, there's a bit of a play, not a play, but that VC mindset in America, the Silicon Valley mindset to investing, they're investing in stocks that don't necessarily mean revert. You know, Apple hasn't mean reverted. Facebook doesn't mean revert. They're transformational stocks once they get network effects that they can grow exponentially. Whereas as an Aussie investor, a lot of us are spending our days investing in resource companies, which generally by the definition outside of Fortescue mean revert, um, you know, particularly the base metals. Do you think there's something in that broader psychology that differentiates the markets or do you think it is just the liquidity that you mentioned? Oh, look, I, I think it's both to be sort of, to be fair. I think there's the, the liquidity is, is definitely a factor because, you know, those funds over there are so huge now and, uh, uh, and, you know, there's so much money, obviously, in the system sloshing around trying to find a home. And, uh, and so, therefore, there is that sort of what you mentioned there. There is a bit of a paradigm shift going on. And, it, and you know, and I'm, I'm 46 years old and, I, and I'm old enough to remember and I'm old enough to be in this, this game since I was, you know, 20, 23, 24. And, and I'm old enough to remember the, the tech boom and the tech bust. And I think at that time... The concept of what was happening and, and what people, the vision that the, the entrepreneurs had and whatnot was absolutely 100% correct. You know, we were going to have the internet of things and all those buzzwords and whatnot. It's just taken 20 years to play out. And, and now we're at that sort of saturation point where, look, at the end of the day, you know, thanks to these sort of things, um, technology is readily available to everybody. Whereas back in the day when I first started in this industry, you know, we were still using the old brick Nokia's sort of thing. And, uh, and, and, you know, we were using a fax machine for bloody um, contract notes. Um, and so I think now there, there is that sort of paradigm shift is upon us as a, as, as a society. Um, and as a result, that liquidity now is, is just so huge and it's chasing, you know, whatever. It's, it, it seems to be flowing, especially in the US. And now you're seeing the, the invent in the US of the SPACs and that's creating a whole nother market. And, uh, and so there's, there's pension funds that invest in those SPACs to get yield and, you know, all the other machinations that are going on. So um, I, I look, I, in terms of that, that sort of broader questions, probably beyond my pay grade, but I reckon, <laughs> there is, um, I reckon there's certainly forces at play now that are a bit more, global than there were, say, 20 years ago. Anytime I, I see the SPACs in the States, I think of the, the Perth brokers and their shell companies, they were just ahead of the game by, by 20 years, <laughs> right. weren't they? 
if only we could list uh, if only we could list some cash boxes these days, it'd be great fun. Well, that's right. The Aussie shells slash spacks have been taken away, haven't they? But yeah, um, they have. They have, and it's unfortunate because there is that. And this is where you know this is a whole other conversation around the ASX and so on. But it's unfortunate because you know because what the reality of the situation is is that no one goes out on the intention to lose money, mm-hmm. and but sometimes stuff happens that beyond anyone's control. Promoters, directors, companies, whatever, it's beyond anyone's control, and 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 so people naturally you know you do have a loss in there. And the old game, the old shell game, used to allow people to have another go. That's right. And, and now it's a little bit, you know, you just can't do it anymore. And, and I don't know whether that's the, you know, I'd, I'd really like to see the NSX get up and get liquidity and get, get really going because I think that would be a viable alternative to the ASX. And if you could, if the NSX got up and got liquidity and really got a lot of companies on there and a lot of companies vested on there with a vested interest in seeing it succeed, I think that would be a great result. And similar to, say, the New York, uh, London has the LSE, and then they have the LSE standard, and then they have the AIM, you know, and I think Australia should should develop into that sort of thing because it does give, you know, it gives companies a, a second chance at life. Bard One, classic yeah. example. Bard One was a mining company mm. about eight or nine years ago. Now, all those shareholders that had all the shares in that mining company that didn't actually work and through no fault of anyone's, it didn't succeed, now are sitting on, you know, big wins in terms of their bad one stop. There was, yeah, I mean, I think there were just some horrible cap structures, weren't there, in terms of the promoter scares. But it's like the ASX said, well, instead of cleaning up that side of it and letting it occur, which there was a lot of things that were great about it for investors, they've just sort of sacked them all together, which I agree, I reckon it's been a, um, yeah, been a shame. I- it's a philosophical sort of view, but I, I, I don't know why the ASX hasn't done a deal with the NSX and just said, right, you know, we'll own a chunk of your exchange and for that we'll put, you know, a thousand companies on there or something like mm. that. You know, it gets sort of shifts what is probably the ASX's biggest, you know, I, I would say it'd be the 80-20 rule, you know, ASX would spend 80 amount of, 80% of their time on 20% of their, you know, companies and, yeah, I don't know why, but, you know, like I said, beyond my pay grade, that one, mate. But we'll, uh, we'll get on to your next stock soon. But I, to finish up on, on Bard, I just sort of want to, to get you to walk through us the psychology of investing in companies that have gone up so rapidly. You know, I mean, I struggle to invest in a company. Even when you talk about its addressable market is big, 300 million market cap is, um, you know, very reasonable if, if they end up being successful. When you see companies you want to buy that have already gone up so rapidly, do you try and structure your investment in a staggered approach? Do you try and run, run the gauntlet and still jump in all at once? How do you sort of view it, generally speaking, from a, a merchant funds perspective? Um, I try and structure it a little bit. Um, and I'll give you an example. You know, I try to structure it in a way that I'm always conscious of, of, of risk, number yeah. one. So we're always conscious of, of not sort of paying over the odds if... Um, it, it's hard when something's gone up like like Bard has so much. You know, would I, I, I whilst I think it's, uh, and we're fortunate because we've been in it, and I think it's a combination of, um, and the reason why it was sort of so un, undervalued, if you like, and unloved is, you know, it was pretty quiet. There wasn't much marketing. There wasn't much PR or IR information out there. Um, 
you know, the, the uh, post the merger with Sienna, it was a matter of sort of just doing the nuts and bolts right. You know, the company had to move from Perth to Melbourne. Um, Leanne, the CEO, moved from Perth to Melbourne. Um, you know, we had to restructure the boards. There was um, changing offices, all of that sort of stuff. And and the difficulty with all of that is it happened right in the middle of COVID. And uh, and so you know she so Leanne essentially moved from Perth, where we, we were relatively unaffected by COVID, with the exception of a couple of little sort of lockdowns here and there. But um, to Melbourne, and and so she went from um, you know having pretty much a free life to do whatever she wanted, and all of a sudden, fifteen weeks of lockdown. And um, as you guys all copped over there, which was awful, and uh, and so. So for, for a fair amount of time post-merger, there was actually just doing the nuts and bolts of the business and slashing costs and, you know, all of those sort of things. So there, there wasn't a hell of a lot to talk about. Um, the, the, the structure of the company now with, you know, Carl Stubbings, Jeff Cummings, um, Professor Alan Cripps from um, Griffith University in Queensland, uh, Max Johnson, Philip Powell, you know, the board is, is pretty, you know, for such a small company, the board was pretty rock star. And, um, and so when we sort of look at investments like that and, and we, we look at the board and the people and then we try and work out, well, how, you know, do DD on the industry? Is the industry gigantic? Is there a, the opportunity for the company to re-rate? And, uh, and if there is that opportunity for the company to re-rate and, and go up dramatically, then how do we get set? And to give you an idea, we're doing a transaction at the moment, which has just been released today in a company called NTI. Um, and, you know, what we're looking at on that one is we're exercising some options in order to get set. Um, we're underwriting some options and we're exercising options and because we're not getting set enough as what we would naturally want to just via replacement. And so, so we look at various structures and strategies in order to get our holdings up, a, up at a certain level that it, that it makes a difference because for us now with the sort of volume of funds that we're running, you, you, you need to you need to be able to make a difference. There's no point putting a million bucks into something if it's, and it doubles because unfortunately it's, it's like, it's a first world problem, right? But it doesn't, it doesn't necessarily move the needle in what we need now. So when we're looking at companies and Bard's a great example, we've got a big position, but I think the market cap of this, you know, I, I do think we're going to see Bard probably as a, you know, my view, personal view is that we'll see, but as as the the billion dollar diagnostic company in Australia, and um, and you know it takes time and it takes patience and it takes capital and and we put the capital in. We've got the right shareholder base now. We've got the right board. Um, Dave Williams is in there with us as well. Um, you know, and I, and I think we'll we'll see uh, more pro more and more opportunities and progress down the track on that one. So beautiful. It's, yeah, it's a good one. It's a, it's a big call and it's going to be a great story to, to continue to watch. So secondly, yeah. the uh, second company you wanted to speak about is one I am on the register of in the interest of transparency, and that's Davenport Resources. Why don't you start with telling us about what they do? Yeah, well, look, it's, um, it's a potash company based in Germany. So what I like about Davenport Resources, I do do resource deals from time to time. Um, I don't do a hell of a lot. I don't do, you know, I don't do the scattergun approach. And even though I'm from Perth and I'm in the wild west, so to speak, uh, and it's the resource capital of Australia, I, I don't do uh, a gigantic amount of, of resources deals. But when something comes across my desk, which I think has got the ingredient, what I try and do is I take my, 
my sort of my views on on and my strategies in terms of the biotech to to the resources market and uh, and you know there are some overlaps and there are some similarities in in and you know some people probably won't like me saying this but you know um, where you've got a scientist and a geologist and they're, they're similar types of people and they're both looking for something and one of them's looking in a petri dish and the other one's looking in a in a drill hole or a drill core or something like that and so there are some overlaps within those industries and uh and so i try and just take the and the reason why i like davenport for instance and specifically is similar to the bad one it's a gigantic project Mm. Um, and it's a gigantic problem and and you know as the world grows and grows and grows and gets bigger and bigger and has food shortages and all of those sort of things. And we have climate change and we have weather patterns that, you know, that are, that are unpredictable and, and those sort of things. Then, you know, a potash company that, uh, that can help, you know, at a basic human level, you know, when I look at, you know, some charity stuff that I do with Oz Harvest, if there's a company out there that can, you know, assist people to grow food more effectively on a smaller plot of land, then I'm quite interested in that. And, uh, and Davenport is, is probably the largest potash resource in, in Europe, you know, and, and it was a company that's been around for years. And so, you know, if I use the scientific analogy or the, the, the analogy I talked about when I look at these sort of investments and I look at the company, do the DD on the company, work out the size of the company and where I think it could go to. And then it's a matter of looking down further at the board and the share register and all the other bits and pieces and just trying to work out, okay, well, I like this size, I like the theme, I like the company, I like the, the structure of the, the investment. How do we get set? How do we get enough stock? And, uh, and we've only just recently gone, you know, we've been building a position there for the last few months. Um, and only just recently have we sort of gone substantial and then we topped up again when, when there was a vendor sell down. So a lot of people will be put off by that. Like when you say vendor sell down, you know, some people in the small cap market, oh my God, never go near that sort of thing. Whereas I'm looking at it, well, the vendor sell down was actually the opportunity for us to increase the stake. And, uh, and so from that point of view, when you look at um, uh, like, like the science stuff, it's a gigantic company. There's a potential for it to be huge. Um, it's based in Germany. As I said, it's the largest sort of potash resource in, in Europe. Um, had something like 300 drill holes in the area um, already drilled back in the sort of early 90s um, for various reasons. It, it was abandoned and then um, some uh, actually a guy out of Melbourne picked up the assets and, and put it into a listing and, and they listed at 20 cents. Stock didn't do a hell of a lot. Um, we're in now at about sort of our average cost is about six or so. So it's been a working mine before. And like you said, they've got a heap of historical data there. They still need two holes to actually become JORC compliant resource, which a lot of people are feeling uh, will give it the potential to re-rate. The fact that they've got over 300 historical drill holes, does that give you some comfort that they're more likely hit on those drill holes than you know, a typical explorer that might be drilling land for the very first time? Yeah, look, it does, Chris. Um, it gives me a lot of comfort. And, and this is where looking at the downside, you know, and, and trying to cover off on the downside risk is the company where its market cap is now, you know, it doesn't have a huge amount of downside risk. Um, they recently raised um, about eight. I think they got demand for a fair bit more and they might have taken a little bit more money and we participated in that as well. 
um, and uh, and that that money was to do the the two drill holes. So, like you said, they've had around three hundred drill holes in the past, and now um, look. Uh, I think you've just got to back the horse called vested interest a little bit. You know, we're, we're, everybody's out there now trying to make money for shareholders and trying to, you know, like I said, back at the start, everyone's trying to do the right thing, you know. And, and so logic would say that in order for Davenport to re-rate, that they would go to the lowest hanging fruit in terms of those historical data that they've got. So, um, you know, in my mind, uh, that's a pretty good bet. Um, that I think they'll re-rate substantially based on the success of those, those two drill holes that they go to. And so that's one milestone or potential milestone. I think when investors are looking at these types of resource plays, local community support is another thing that would make sense to watch really closely. If you've got a mine and the locals can't stand it or it's a, yeah. you know, it's uranium or a substance that, that's sensitive, that community support plays a very big part is that something with a company like Davenport that you'd be watching closely to make sure that the company is getting that community support yeah absolutely look you know and this is where you sort of have to look at the success of Vulcan um, recently so Vulcan Germany's obviously first world and uh, and and they're quite pro mining if you're doing it in the right way and uh, and the success of Vulcan is really testament to that over the last um, you know six or eight months that was a stock that that you know we had some involvement in early on, and uh, unfortunately sold out early on too. But uh, but we still got a few shares kicking around, and, uh, and and you know that's had a phenomenal run. But I think the you know if you've got the community support and you've got a pro government, mm. um, which um, Davenport does as well, you've got um, you know you, you know it's in their it's in their best incentive for the community there to get that mine back up and running because it's not like and this is where I think some of the ESG movements coming into play now a little bit because you know that that's not an it's not an open mine it's not a a mine that they're going to have to start from scratch and mm. go you know, and, and be very environmentally damaging. You know, this is something that has been open and operational as recent as the early 90s. Mm. Um, and through various reasons, you know, mainly like potash price dropped and, and you know, became uneconomical to continue to do it. And when, you know, Germany sort of moved to east and west and so on, then it, it, it sort of got left. And whereas now I think the government is certainly pro-mining and, you uh, um, and, and from an environmental standpoint, there's less impact by re-going over those existing holes than there is of starting a brand new mine. Mm. And there's a hell of a lot of value in that. You know, if you think about it, there, there is like those three, you know, with, with the company spending $8 million or thereabouts in order to drill two holes. Now, they've inherited data for 300 holes. So you just think about the value that's in there, that the money that has been poured into that ground um, and have a, a working mind there. So, you know, looking at the risk factor, I'm looking at something like Davenport and going, okay, what's my downside? My downside might be, you know, we invest at six cents and it goes to four, but my upside is we invest in six cents and it goes to a dollar. And, and for me, you know, managing that equation and having a say, or not having a say, but, you know, having a decent stake in that company, if that goes to a dollar, then, you know, it means from our point of view or from the Merchant Opportunities Fund point of view, you know, we'll print good numbers next year as well. And um, so, you know, those things are really important, but I think it yeah, certainly a pro-government, you know, is, is first stage. And, and, and experienced guys on the board and running the company at the end of the day. And in terms of the, the thematics that potentially play into Davenport's hands, food inflation is, is an issue which 
many think he's coming already starting to see it in, in different food products and, and commodities in the last 12 months. If we do see continued food inflation, the amount farmers are going to be able to spend and want to spend on fertiliser to increase their yield is going to go up significantly, one would imagine. So is that part of the, the thematic, the blue sky thematic, that if food inflation comes, the potash price will follow? I, I think so, for sure. I think it's a logical scenario that you're going to see. Unfortunately, uh, you know, it's a, it's, that's a world problem, right? And it, yeah. it is a legitimate world problem. And, and I have had some exposure through this, through, you know, being heavily involved in Oz Harvest here in the WA, and that's a food charity. And, um, and you know, Oz Harvest has offices in Sydney and Melbourne and everywhere else as well. But I started the Perth sort of chapter of it. And, and food inflation and, and, and food pricing is a real problem. Um, and it's a real social problem when people, you know, have to make a choice between medicine or food. Um, and unfortunately, that is the case uh, in a lot of places. So I agree with you 100%. I think that as food inflation starts to, to kick in, you are going to see people trying to, you know, grow more on less. And, uh, and you know, as the world's arable land reduces, and, and you could sort of attribute that to various factors, but certainly, you know, there's got to be a climate change argument, there's an industrialisation argument, all those sort of things. And, and, and that's beyond this conversation, but I do think that is something that is going to be an issue down the track. And, and I also think this is why you're starting to see the potash price increase. You know, 91, 92, early 90s, it just wasn't an issue. Whereas now I think you're starting to see the price of, um, and, and all of those factors that I mentioned a second ago could be at play there, you just don't know, but you are seeing, you know, fundamentally the potash price has risen about 30% in the last couple of years. And, and I think it will be a theme of the future, just like, you know, clean energy and Vulcan and those sort of companies and, and whatnot. And so um, I do think that is something that will play out in, in, in certainly in Davenport as well. And you mentioned ESG uh, briefly before, which is obviously another huge long-term thematic. When I look at Davenport from an ESG perspective, I think uh, having a potash deposit in central Europe where you can distribute potash to, to farmers nearby would be a price from an ESG perspective, but then is there also a movement against these sorts of fertilisers by some of the ESG community? Um, maybe talk us through if I've got that right and, and how you're viewing those two potential issues. The ESG community is a difficult one. Um, not, not a difficult, not saying the community is a difficult one. I'm just saying that that, that sort of um, type of investing, I think is, is a bit difficult to, um, to track um, because I think it evolves quite a lot and it evolves on a, a daily or a weekly mm. basis. And, and what's considered, you know, ESG friendly a month ago now is not. And so I don't know um, if you can sort of put to, but it does have an impact on, like I know of a, um, a, a mate of mine who runs a gold company and, and you know, they had a, an incident they had a lot of ESG funds that were investors in the gold company. And then they had an incident um, at a mine site, which, which, you know, it's an accident. And uh, all of a sudden the share price is down 30% because the ESG funds all bailed. Mm. So um, I think, you know, focusing on that too much is, is sort of a little bit difficult because like I said, the, that, that tidal wave, you know, moves wherever it goes. And, uh, and uranium's a bit like that, don't you think? In a minute, uranium feels like it's flipped from being 
something ESG wouldn't touch even only a few years ago. And it, that feels like that's quickly sprinting towards golden child of the ESG community. Yeah, yeah, it is. And and look, you know, Europe is certainly the biggest, um, or, or the biggest, you know, a lot of um, France and Germany have uranium, um, have uranium power plants, nuclear power plants is how um, when you're driving through Germany or you're driving through France and whatnot, you know, there's nuclear power plants all over the place. So you're dead right. You know, three or four years ago, you couldn't, for love or money, get a uranium deal off the ground. Whereas this year and the, or the last 12 months, uranium is the, the next, uh, you know, is certainly a hot item up there with, with lithium and, and other, you know, metals that have been um, uh, are now ESG. So yeah, I don't know, mate, to be really honest. It's, um, I think there's, if you look at ESG and you look at the, the um, you're talking about the environmental impacts of something like Davenport. Now, all of those, like I said before, all those drill holes have been done. So yeah. you're not doing, you're not starting from fresh. Um, it's close to, um, you're selling potash into European markets. It's the biggest potash um, ground or the biggest potash area in, in Europe and you're selling into Europe. So therefore, transport costs are going to be low. Yeah. So, you know, there's those sort of things that are, that are all positives. But then like you correctly said, is that, you know, people are sort of saying, well, fertiliser might not be um, as ESG friendly as some other method of, of you know, increasing your output on crops at, at a, you know, increasing your productivity from a smaller plot of land. Generally, people that can't afford to weed aren't making those arguments, are they? Correct. So. Exactly right. Exactly right. And, and that's where I think, you know, I think people for food security is a big issue. And, yeah. and, and this is, you know, and again, when I talk about Oz Harvest, I don't, I don't want to talk because it's not a conversation about Oz Harvest, but food security is a, is a massive issue. And that's a massive issue worldwide. And, and I agree with you. I think when people are making that decision, they're not necessarily, you know, focusing on did those, you know, are they organic apples or are they just apples from wherever? And so to finish off, maybe just, just give a broad overview of, of market cap of Davenport. It's going to be a relatively low CapEx project, we believe. Um, what sort of numbers do you feel it's going to take to get the mine back up and running? And if you've done any sort of future cash flows over it, um, in broad brushstrokes, that'd be a great way to finish. I think um, market cap where it is at the moment, I think there's, like I said, you know, I think this is one where there's there's gigantic upside and this is, it's a huge addressable market. Um, market cap is relatively small at this point in time. The company's got the board in place, the right board in place. They've got the right amount of cash in place. They've got the right shareholder list and the right structure. So I think, you know, those sort of tick, 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 tick items for me are, are are really important and there's something that you know potentially you know when your investors are looking at sort of how to choose stocks and some of that information is hard for people to uh, to obtain you know you can't just get that from going online at the asx.com sort of thing um and so you know from from my perspective those are really important attributes that i look for in a company along with massive upside now given the the historic history of that particular um asset in germany given the environmental sort of upside of not having to redo the whole thing, um, given the, the community involvement and, the, and you know, it's, it's, also, it's also a perpetual mining license, you know, it doesn't yeah. expire. There's no royalties either, is there? Is no. that right? Yeah. And, and that's, that's really unusual, you know, like it's something that 
um, the, the guys that sort of found that and put that into Davenport as the company originally, um, you know, that, that's a huge selling point. And I don't, I don't think that's been articulated that, that well. You know, mm. like a lot of mining deals in Australia or, or, or whatnot or most other, you know, developed nations have an expiry date. You know, this mm. thing is perpetual. And, uh, and like you said, you know, there's no royalties. So, um, you know, so the capex is relatively low because a lot of the, lot of, you know, the, the grunt work, if you like, has been done. So, um, and then when you start to look at other projects um, in terms of, you know, scale and size, you know, BHP have got some potash projects in Canada. Now, you know, they've tinned up about $12 billion or something of that nature, you know, mm. so you're talking massive numbers. And uh, and I think, you know, Davenport can certainly, you know, drill a couple of holes. I'm hopeful that it's the, the low-hanging fruit type strategy, which, you know, I'd imagine it will be. Um, and like I said, I think it could re-rate certainly up to, you know, up to a buck in, in, in the right market. Not arguably, I think we're in the right market, um, but I also think, uh, you know, I, I think even at a dollar, it'll still be pretty cheap. And then you'll go out and raise money and it'll, and it'll still be one of the cheapest potash deals, you know, globally. And uh, I, I just don't think the market is seeing that upside at the moment. And I don't think the market is seeing the, the opportunity that is there with that um, perpetual mining license and no royalties. Beautiful, Taffy. That's a great overview. So, uh, mate, Thanks very much for your time. Really appreciate it. And uh, we'll have to catch up soon when the borders open. No problems. Thanks, Chris. This episode of Talk Your Book was proudly brought to you by Honan, who go beyond a transactional insurance broker to deliver better outcomes for their clients. If you're enjoying Talk Your Book, make sure you subscribe to Chris Judd Invest.